0: This is I'm Really Rich, Forbes on Trump on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Maggie McGrath. Welcome to the show. In each episode, we're going to dive into the world of Trump through the eyes and ears of Forbes reporters and editors. We'll look at his wealth, his business associates, and his effect on the economy and business segments around the country. First up on this week's episode is Dan Alexander. He's an associate editor at Forbes who covers Donald Trump and the people around him. Dan, welcome.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So you recently traveled out to Las Vegas to meet one of President Trump's business partners, but also a friend, which is a word that you don't hear often from the people around Donald Trump. It seems like a lot of them fall under the business category, and he keeps a tight circle often with family. So tell me about this friend, Phil Ruffin.
1: Yeah, this is one of Donald Trump's closest friends. You know, Donald Trump actually served as the best man at his wedding. Uh, Ruffin told me he didn't give a speech. Ruffin gave the speech, but uh, he did pay for the wedding, although, <laughs> although not for the music. Uh, so <laughs> you, you know, but they're they're good friends, and like a lot of Donald Trump's relationships, it seems to cross over, uh, you know, friendship, family, and also business. So both their wives are incredibly close. You know, they're both both immigrants from Eastern Europe. Both of them are former models. Uh, they're both much younger and much more attractive than their husbands. (laughs) Um, And so they're really, really close, but they've also gotten close uh, by doing what's become a really successful project together in Las Vegas. It's actually the only Trump branded property that Donald Trump has actually invested his own money in uh, along with somebody else of anywhere in the world. So whenever you hear, you know, the Trump Vancouver, the Trump Istanbul, the Trump, you know, all of those are just licensed deals. This is the only one that's truly, partnership with the Trump name on it where he's put in his own money.
0: So we'll get to that in a second, but let's just take a step back. Who is Phil Ruffin? Do most Americans, I feel like I know who he is because I'm in this office, but who is he to the average American? What do they need to know about him?
1: Yeah, I think that the the only reason that people would probably know Phil Ruffin is uh, if they like going to Las Vegas and have stayed at the Treasure Island Casino. Uh, Phil Ruffin, you know, he's sort of a, a deal maker. You know, he's not uh Steve Wynn type casino guy who's built, you know, a massive, you know, complex of casinos and all of that sort of thing. Instead, he's sort of traded up across industries over the last half century. Started in gas stations and then uh, went down to casinos and said that he really likes casinos because you never know when somebody's going to come in and blow all the money. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: and the house always wins, so yeah, the exactly. odds are in his favor. <laughs> exactly. He also had an interesting deal with uh, convenience stores. Under 1,200 square feet, he was able to get around some laws uh, back in the day.
1: Yeah, this was one of his early breaks. You know, he, had, he had quit a job at a department store where the manager told him that he had to go repossess a monkey. Uh, That that somebody hadn't paid for And so he's like alright I'm done with this So he went back home to Wichita which is where he was from And he bought a little convenience store And a couple of years later he got really lucky And they passed a law that said that if you were a convenience store That was uh, 1,200 square feet You couldn't be open on Sundays And he just happened to be 1,100 square feet (laughs) And he was a hard worker And uh, so he just worked like crazy And for one out of every seven days, he was the only guy around, or at least the biggest guy around, who still had groceries. And so he was able to make it a really successful business, and then he expanded from there, went into gas stations, casinos, hotels, all the rest.
0: That's a big deal. I feel like I do all my shopping on Sunday.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right.
0: So how did he and Donald Trump first meet?
1: Well, so they met. uh, Originally, they were trying to do—Phil Ruffin had had bought uh, an old casino— which is actually next to where the current hotel is. And he was thinking about hooking up a hotel onto that casino. Um, and so he went up to Trump Tower, and he went up there, and he says that you know there was a lot of people waiting for Donald Trump, and his desk was very messy. And so he was very impressed by the whole experience. <laughs> and uh, and they, they clearly struck a bond, although at that time, not any sort of business partnership. But they kept on chatting. And several years later, Trump came out to Las Vegas, and they went out to dinner with their wives. And afterwards, you know, I suppose as billionaires do, th- their their after dinner little treat was to go out and check out some property. <laughs> so uh, they went out, and there was an empty piece of land, um, part of that old property that he had originally owned. And he said, you know, wouldn't this be great to build something here? And Trump took one look at it, and he said, uh, yes, it would. Let's do it. And so the two of them partnered up. Now, this was right in the mid-2000s, so it was pretty bad timing, actually, mm-hmm. to do it. Um, and the the project initially ran into a lot of trouble, uh, but they fought through it and, and made it work in the end. If you look at a lot of other projects in Vegas at that time that were started then, they weren't as successful as this one has been.
0: I think Ruffin talked about that in his speech at the RNC last summer. He talked yeah. about how much money he and now president trump put into the property
2: what do you do we had 500 million dollars in debt what do you do donald does not give up he said let's go forward with this project we'll put the money in we will make the damn thing work and he did by the way we put in 30 million apiece in four years
1: yeah you know it's interesting i think a lot of people think about Donald Trump as just a guy who, you know, spends other people's money and um, isn't willing to, you know, to invest anything. And this is really a a story that goes against that in some ways. Um, You know, they were at the bottom of the recession. They got on the phone with a bankruptcy lawyer who was one of Donald's guys. And he said, you guys have to declare bankruptcy on this thing. I mean, the loss that you could take and the amount of tax money that you could save if you did would be enormous and Donald said no 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 this is not atlantic city this is las vegas it's going to come back and so every single month for a few years they wired in money both of them and there was never any problem with you know Donald's money not coming in or with Ruffin's money not coming in they kept the thing afloat and you know after a few years it proved to be right and it did come back and now it's worth more money than they have put into it and they've that's just the part that they still have left is worth more money than they put into it, and they've already sold about 900 condos out of it. So it's proved to be a really successful project in the end, although there for a few years it looked pretty dicey.
0: What do you think the whole episode says about President Trump and his deal-making? Is it that he trusts his friends? Is it that he takes risks? Is it all of the above?
1: I, I think that there are a lot of different ways to look at it, but I think that my takeaway was Donald Trump is a lot more complicated than most people think. And that's both people who support him and think that he's, you know, this, you know, got this Midas touch and everything that he touches turns into gold, and you know he's an extraordinary businessman. And also people who who detest him and and think that, you know, that he's not willing to invest any real money, that he uh, doesn't have any business talent. What happened in Vegas goes directly against what happened in Atlantic City, which has gotten a lot more press. And I think that. When you zoom in on Donald Trump in any facet of his life, you just find that uh, once you think you have him figured out, keep reading, because you probably don't.
0: <laughs> so what does Ruffin want to do next with um, the Trump Organization? I, we yeah. need to separate the two now. What's he looking forward to now that his friend is in the Oval Office?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. you know. Uh, Ruffin, like a lot of the partners around the world, says the Trump brand now is stronger than it's ever been. And Ruffin still has a small slice of property Left over from those old casino days when he had the property originally and he's sort of envisioning the reverse plan of what he first proposed to Donald Trump in Trump Tower so now he owns a hotel uh, does not own a casino right next to it and he envisions building a casino to latch onto it the reverse of owning the casino and, and envisioning building a Trump hotel and you know I talked with Eric Trump about this and I said you know what do you think of the idea and I sort of expected him to back off and you know get sort of skittish about it or something like that and he was like yeah sounds great you know i love phil ruffin i would do anything with him and you know i asked well does the fact that your father's now the president would that prohibit you guys getting into the casino industry you know probably the most highly regulated industry of any industry in the world and he said no uh you know he thinks that they can can go ahead with this so it's still very, very early. You know, they they do have the area zoned for a casino already, um, and they've been doing some strategic things to make sure that they can build one there. But you know, it's not like there are shovels in the ground or anything like that. And with a lot of construction projects, things can fall apart in different stages. So we'll see if this one actually pans out. But it's interesting just that they're interest that they're both into it. And
0: was there talk about a high-speed rail line to get people from California to this new casino? Yeah,
1: yeah. So th- this is one of the really interesting things when I was talking to Ruffin is, he's very excited about uh, Donald's infrastructure projects, and one that really gets him going is uh, the possibility of building high-speed rail from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. Actually, the the project is started by his neighbor, um, and the neighbor said, "Hey, would you mind talking to Trump about it?" Who's and the neighbor? Uh, I, I forget the guy's name right now. I've talked. To him. He's a nice guy, but um, but anyway. So Ruffin said, uh, yeah, and r- you know Ruffin's a big supporter of this project. So he thinks that it would bring a lot more people to Las Vegas, which of course would would benefit everyone in Las Vegas. But the president owns property there, and so it would benefit him as well. And it would also benefit Ruffin. It would benefit him at the Trump Hotel, and it would b- benefit him at the Treasure Island, which he owns just down the street the train station would be about three miles from the Trump Hotel. So it'd be a long walk, but it's not too far. And so, you know, the fact that they had that conversation and Trump said, hey, you know, it sounds like a good idea as long as it can bring a lot of jobs, brings a lot of interesting conflict of interest questions. For one, this is sort of the classic conflict of interest where you wonder if somebody might make a decision that would benefit them financially. For two, you think, what if it's the flip side? What if uh, this actually is a good idea And Trump doesn't make the decision Based on it benefiting him financially But everyone thinks that he did And so the idea gets shot down Because people think that Trump's just in it for himself And so either way that you look at it It's not really a pretty picture But certainly it's it's interesting that A guy who's one of his partners Was, was willing to bring up uh, That with the president And uh, just, you know just shows that With the current business network That Trump has it's impossible for him to avoid appearances or actual conflicts of interest.
0: Kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. That's right. How does how would that potential project, and if you didn't look at this, that's fine, but mm-hmm. I think of Hyperloop when I think high-speed right. rail and I think of the West. Right. I just think of Elon Musk and <laughs> I think of all the minds out there that are, are working on those projects. Sure. So did you look at how a federal high-speed rail, a federally funded high-speed rail project might um either conflict with privately funded projects that are trying to get off the ground or maybe help them?
1: Yeah, so there's actually already a railroad that goes between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. It's just not high speed. So that means that, you know, that they'd be able to leverage a lot of that rail. Uh, They'd still have to build some new stuff, but they'd be able to leverage a lot of that to make this this work. Part of the trick here is that high-speed rails aren't manufactured in the United States. And the major investor in the project is actually the government of China, and so the what they 're asking for is a federal loan to bridge some of the funding here, and they promise that they will be able to pay it all back and they say that their projections show that that's you know realistic to expect, but the Obama administration wasn't so sure about this idea uh, because they didn't want to turn over you know a major infrastructure project to uh, a country that at times is an adversary of the United States and so the trick is though that there's no there's no factory in the U.S. that builds high-speed trains, and so it's sort of a well if you're not going to buy it from abroad, where are you going to get it? No factory is going to open just to build up one train and then immediately shut down. So it, it's sort of a a tricky little dance that they have to figure out, and and we'll see if it happens. But rough and certainly optimistic. Well,
0: that'll be fun to watch. <laughs> yeah. You had another interesting conversation with Ruffin, and you just published a story on this the other day. Um, Trump's Vegas partner says business is not dividing profits from foreign governments as promised. Tell us about this.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, when Donald Trump agreed to hand over the management of his businesses to his two sons, Don and Eric, he said immediately you know, that they were going to take the profits from their hotels that came from foreign governments, and they were going to hand it over to the Treasury. This was all part of an effort to try to resolve concerns that he would be violating something called the Emoluments Clause, which prohibits state officials from accepting payments from foreign governments while they're in office. And so they they promised that they would do this, and so I asked Ruffin about it. Hey, you know, how's it going? Have you done that? Mm-hmm. And he said, I basically, I don't know what you're talking about. So I said, well, you know, we're, I'm asking about you know, the emolument stuff and whether you guys have had to divide the profits. And, and if so, would that affect the actual business for you at all? You know, I mean, would the value of the hotel be less because you're now cutting away part of your potential customer base? And he said, Dan, they're they're not going to do that. They're just not going to do that. And so we'll, we'll see. Um, <laughs> you know, I asked Eric Trump about it and he said, oh, yes, we are going to do that and we are doing that right now. Uh, He he wouldn't give me any specifics on how exactly it works, um, how they're cutting up the profits or where it's coming from or anything like that. You know, he basically said, I don't know, our accountants have to figure that out. But it it certainly brings into question whether Trump is, is following these promises that he made early on to divide his presidency from his business.
3: Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing.
0: It reminded me of the headline about him donating his presidential salary, uh, which is a separate issue, right, because it's not foreign governments. But right. he had made a promise that he would donate his the salary he makes as president. And recently there was a press conference asking uh, – and someone asked, hey – has this been donated? Where's the money going? And Press Secretary Sean Spicer was like, oh, we'll do it at the end of the year. And then he made what I thought was a joke about the press corps can decide where where the money goes, which charity <laughs> the money goes to. I'm so. sure that was a joke. <laughs> I, I think it was a joke, but you know, you never know sometimes. <laughs> right, so right. um yeah, it's interesting to see what they're doing about some of these um campaign promises as it relates to the money that they are reaping both from business deals and from the presidency.
1: Yeah, you know, a lot of the central tenets of that of those promises that they made early on seem to be a little shaky now. For instance, another thing that they said was that the president was not going to talk with his sons about the business. Well, in fact, now we learn that you know Eric Trump is giving his father periodic reports on the financials of the business. I asked him how often those reports were going to come out, and he said, oh, well, d- depending. I said, well, okay, you know, depending on what? And you know, are these going to come out quarterly or, you know, wh- what should we expect? He said, oh, yeah, I don't know, depending, P- probably, probably quarterly. Um, but it, it certainly doesn't seem set in stone. But it is clear that although both, both his children and Trump himself promised that he wouldn't talk with them about the business, uh, they are at least having some discussions about it.
0: It seems hard to separate, right? Like if you're sitting at the dinner table and you're used to talking about these things, how, how do you not bring it up?
1: Right, particularly when you're a member of the Trump family, I mean uh, you know th- their life is business, you know, his kids have both worked in the business for more than a decade. Eric Trump spent his teenage years working on construction sites for his father. I mean, this is the life that they live and and to totally separate that out just seems extremely difficult. The counter point is that well, that's why he should have divested in the first place because you can't you can't separate it. But when he didn't divest, I don't think that anybody's been really surprised to hear that there are still conversations going on about the business with the president.
0: What else will you be watching for? From uh, Eric, did he give you any tidbits for uh, your reporting over the next few weeks or, or Ruffin himself?
1: I think that there are a lot of things to chase down. One thing that I found with Ruffin is that if you, if you don't go to the White House press pool and if you don't go to the Trump organization— and you go to some of the people who are working with them on the periphery, go to their partners, go to the people overseas who they're working with, go to their lenders, go to people on the outside, you can often find out a lot more information about what's going on on the inside than you could if you go directly to the source. Now, you want to, of course, then after you have those conversations, talk with the Trump Organization, talk with the White House about it. Of course. Um, But I I think that a lot of the good reporting, that we're going to see over the next you know, couple of years is probably going to originate with conversations with people who are not right at the center of, of Trump's orbit.
0: Well, that provides a good segue because as I perhaps mentioned, and if I didn't should have mentioned, your Ruffin story was part of our billionaires issue that is on stands now. And we have a 25 page spread of all of Trump's business partners around the world. And, and you edited a good bit of this. And one of the stories that was really interesting to me was a family in Turkey. And in the last episode, we had Randall Lane talk about how all of these business partners basically have a lottery ticket. Their business (laughs) partner is the most famous person in the world. As Ruffin and others have said, the brand has never been hotter. But this family has found itself in a bit of a disagreement, perhaps civil war is another word or term (laughs) that I have heard used for it. So tell me about this family and this business partner.
1: Well, you know, it's really interesting if you think about how people reflect on Donald Trump in different places around the world. You know, he's got a major project in Turkey. Uh, Again, it's not one that he owns, but his name is on it and it's a licensed deal. And Turkey is a Muslim nation. And he's obviously said some very offensive things toward Muslims. The president of Turkey asked the Doğan family, which owns this project, to please take Mr. Trump's name off of the building. And they looked into their documents and reviewed it and ultimately determined that they couldn't get out of the contract. Uh, it's kind of interesting because in some cases, for instance, in Georgia, the former Soviet Republic of Georgia, Trump got out of the contract because he said, you know, hey, I'm president now, I want to get out of this. Same thing in Brazil, but when partners decide that they want to get out of the contract, whether it's in in Turkey or also in Toronto, they've looked at it and and seen our contracts are too strong. We can't get out of it. And the Trump organization is not uh, eager to let them out of it. Hmm. And so anyways, one one guy in the family uh, has said, well, you know, I know that a lot of my family wants to distance themselves from Trump, but I certainly don't. And so he, uh, you know, has been touting his connection to Trump. Uh, When Trump called up the president of Turkey, he brought up what a great guy this guy was. Um, A couple of his other relatives all went to the inauguration uh, to watch Trump be, be sworn in. And so you've got this weird thing where there's this very powerful, wealthy family in Turkey. And half of them think that Donald Trump is a disaster and think that he's offensive towards Muslims. And the other half of them think that he's great. And you've got sort of this family feud going on. There are other dynamics in there as well that are uh, helping, I I guess, sort of fuel the fire. But but that's certainly part of it is this disagreement over whether or not to support their business partner.
0: So it's their business partner. But as you describe the two feelings, it strikes me as a debate that I think a lot of American households might be (laughs) having right now. Yeah. Now you said that um, some members of the family went to the inauguration. Uh, Roughly speaking, how many business partners came to the foreign business partners came to the the inauguration?
1: You know, we counted up at least fourteen people uh, who are Trump's partners or or, uh, former partners who were in Washington D.C. for the uh, for the inauguration. Sort of the center of it all was the Trump Hotel, uh, which is right down the street from the White House. It's interesting to imagine the scene there. You know, you walk in and you've got a big American flag draped over the lobby, you've got bottles of champagne lining the bar. You've got Harry sitting next to the bar and furiously typing away on his phone, <laughs> trying to meet up with Hussein Sajwani, who's a billionaire partner of Trump's in Dubai. Upstairs you have Phil Ruffin who's booked a four night stay for eighteen thousand dollars a night. Um and Uh, He's, you know, been meeting up with Sajwani as well. You know, their wives have struck up a friendship over their mutual love of jewelry. Um, You've got Ju Kim Tia, who recently opened the newest Trump Tower up in Vancouver, who's trying to get sleep because he's got an early flight the next morning. And uh, and he can't fall asleep because (laughs) everyone's partying too late. (laughs) Um, And then to top it all off, you have in the suites upstairs, uh, Pence and the Pence family. And the presidential suite, of course, is booked by the president himself.
0: Wow. It's a scene unlike any other.
1: <laughs> I don't think that there's ever been anything like it in uh, in certainly American history and, and perhaps in the world of sort of that confluence of, of power and money and business and politics all at once. I shouldn't say in the world. I'm sure in the world there has been. But in uh, in recent U.S. democracy, I don't think we've seen anything like it.
0: I think that's a good place to leave it. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Great.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And now we're going to shift from billionaires to millionaires and what they stand to gain from Trump-inspired tax reform. Here to talk about that is Bill Baldwin, a former editor of Forbes magazine who focuses his coverage on investing in taxes. Bill, thanks for joining us.
4: Anytime, Maggie.
0: So you just wrote this really great piece about America's millionaire towns and how much Trump wants them to get in tax breaks. Tell me how this came about.
4: Well, people are curious about where the rich hang out. And I found 52 locales where there are dense concentrations of these limousines and yachts. Now, a lot of them are on the coasts. If you want to be really rich, being near New York City or being near L.A. is a good idea. Another bunch of them are in Florida because, you see, if you make a billion dollars or even an appreciable fraction of a billion dollars in the big city, and you decide to retire, you go to Florida, where there's no state income tax. So Florida is lousy with these millionaire hangouts.
0: Millionaire hangouts, I like that. So if anyone is looking for a babysitting job, hit up some of these towns. I bet they
4: give good tips. I'm
0: sure they do. So you don't just look at the millionaire hotspots though, you look at how much they would get in tax breaks if a tax reform goes through.
4: Well, that's another interesting phenomenon of what you can do with a computer, some IRS data, and some other information. You can pick apart just what the Trump tax cut would be worth to the average millionaire in a place like Atherton, California. And that town, which has some famous people in it, like Eric Schmidt of Google, is doing very well for itself already because... The average net worth is well into eight figures. Nice place. And there are plenty of mansions for sale if you've got the money. That's another component of our little calculation here. But now let's zero in on Mr. Trump and what his tax cut would do. He's going to do two things. He's going to cut top rates for really rich people, and he's going to limit their deductions. Now, Maggie, do you think that's a fair trade-off?
0: I think it's above my pay grade to pontificate on that.
4: Well, you haven't had to deal with that on your tax return just yet. But if you did live in Atherton and you were a merely average millionaire in that little town, which is near Silicon Valley, your Trump deal would be, let's make you $81,000 richer every year. Nice, huh?
0: Nice work if you can get it.
4: Yes. Now, the price you pay for that uh, lowering of tax brackets— is that you can only deduct, if you're doing a joint return, $200,000 a year in itemized deductions.
0: Only 200000 Only two
4: hundred. That's Donald Trump's idea of how to clip the wings of people who have too much money. But it just so happens in these really rich towns, not moderately rich towns, but really rich towns... The one thing is a lot bigger than the other thing. Cutting your investment taxes is far more significant than the fact that you can't quite deduct all of the California taxes you used to be able to deduct on your federal return. So that's why in Atherton you come out $80,000 ahead.
0: So I can't deduct more than $2,500 in student loan interest and uh, average millionaire is forced to contend with a $200,000 limitation in what they can deduct.
4: That's their personal little hardship. Another interesting town on this list, perhaps won't surprise you, happens to be home to Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> and Palm Beach is doing pretty well. Their savings, again, we're talking about average millionaires there, would run to seventy-five grand a year or thereabouts. That's assuming, of course, they're not paying taxes, which some of them might not be. It's just possible it that they have possible. really good tax dodges. But if they're paying average taxes and I was able to get average numbers from the Internal Revenue Service, they would have significant tax savings from a new plan that cuts top rates and limits deductions.
0: And what's the hope? What will they do with this extra seventy-five, eighty grand?
4: Well, I think they'll keep bidding up the prices of housing in these poor little towns. Now... We took a look using Zillow data at mansions for sale, and it was kind of interesting to see what happens in an economy where the rich get richer faster than the middle class get richer. And what happens is there are only so many good places to live, and it gets real expensive to be there. Atherton, California would be an example. Another one would be the little neighborhood of Bel Air in Los Angeles, where really cool people live like... Jennifer Aniston. And Jennifer Aniston has neighbors who are willing to pay a lot of money to be in that nice little town. And we went looking on Zillow to see where does your dollar go when you buy in this town. And one of the houses for sale, I'm going to describe it to you. I can't tell you how many bedrooms it has because it's just a pile of dirt. You see, it's an empty lot. An empty lot in Bel Air, a little over an acre is going for 18 million bucks you're kidding so who has 18 million i guess it's all those rich people who seem to be doing better and better and will really have extra change in their pockets to buy houses if they get a tax cut
0: wow just feeding the high-end real estate economy
4: more the merrier
0: bill thank you so much for breaking that down for us
4: thank you maggie
0: And finally, I'd like to conclude this week's episode by checking in on business confidence in the U.S. If you consume a lot of business news, you might be hearing a lot about how business confidence here in America is really high, at an all-time high, in fact. A recent survey from the Business Roundtable, which is an industry group of CEOs around the country, found that business confidence is at its highest level since the fourth quarter of 2009. It jumped 19 points between the end of 2016 and the beginning of 2017 alone. That is likely because of the election of President Trump. He has campaigned on tax reform and deregulation. Yet this confidence, this surge in confidence even, has come amid a time of unprecedented turmoil in Washington, D.C. Questions abound over the role Russia may or may not have played in our election and the role it may be continuing to play in the administration. We also recently witnessed the failure of the health care reform bill. It was one of Trump's signature campaign promises, repeal and replace Obamacare. But companies and businesses around the country are looking ahead. They're looking to tax reform. They're looking to deregulation, because they say that will help business growth. And therefore, they are confident. But let's be clear. Within the business community, there are divisions, particularly over the border adjustment tax. It's a proposal on the table that would impose a 20% tariff on imported goods. And retailers, food and apparel alike, are the ones especially concerned. Brian Cornell, the CEO of Target, and Ken Powell, uh, the CEO of General Mills, are two such CEOs who have spoken out against the border adjustment tax and the effect it would have on consumers. They have argued that this tax isn't something that they can avoid because there are some goods and commodities that just can't be grown or produced here in the U.S. Coffee and vanilla, for instance, can't be produced here because of our climate. Even something as all-American as Cheerios might take a hit. I was at an event in Washington, D.C. with Powell, the General Mills' CEO. He said that the oats they use to make Cheerios are grown in Canada because the oats thrive in colder weather. So, therefore, under a border adjustment tax plan, they, too, would get hit with a tax. So some food for thought the next time you're eating your Cheerios or sipping on your Folgers' coffee. Will this taste as good if it's 20% more expensive? And that's it for this episode of Forbes on Trump. I'm Maggie McGrath. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or a question, email us at Trump at podcastone.com.
2: Hi, I'm Clay Smith, host of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews, the podcast for book lovers interested in interviews with best selling authors, insider scoop on the hottest releases, reading ideas for book clubs and bibliophiles, and even tips about which books to skip altogether. So be sure to download new episodes of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews every Tuesday. You can get it on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes, and don't forget to rate, review, and share. I'm Ed Donahue.